Thank you for joining us for Sound Reasoning with Christian apologist and minister Perseus Poku of Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's program will educate, train, and empower you to defend your Christian faith with confidence. Perseus has his bachelor's in history and a master's degree in apologetics. We hope you enjoy this time of equipping so that you can answer questions to defend your Christian faith effectively. Now here's Perseus Poku on Sound Reasoning. Welcome to Sound Reasoning. I'm your host, Perseus Poku. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5 says that the weapons of our warfare are not as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And on today's episode, we wanted to continue uh, part two of Introduction to Islam. And joining us today is our great friend and professor, uh, Daniel Janoski. Uh, Prof- uh, professor Janoski, how are you today? I'm doing fine, Perseus. I'm glad to be here, and uh, it's good to, good to have this opportunity. My first question, Professor, is, uh, what does Islam teach concerning salvation? It's a great question, because it's very different from Christianity, which says that uh, salvation is basically all upon what Christ has done for us. We cannot do anything to gain that salvation. Whereas in Islam, they basically believe that uh, you can uh, bring about your own salvation hopefully by doing more good works than bad works. And if your good works at the end outweigh your bad works, then you should find favor with Allah, and he will accept you into paradise. However, how do you know what good works are? So in the end, most Muslims are caught in the dilemma of not knowing what is going to happen. They don't have eternal security. Ultimately, they hope and realize that the Quran does say a little bit about saying that uh, it all depends on Allah's mercy at the end. So even if your good works far outweigh your bad works, he may not accept you. It's mm. all up to him. Mm. So they say, well, in uh, the will of Allah, inshallah, in his will, mm-hmm. I will be saved. But they don't know. They do not have the assurance of salvation because ultimately they feel like they've got to bring it about or it's by whimsy of Allah. So that's where we as Christians can come to them with the the free salvation of Christ, because he has done it all for us if we trust in him. Very different. Amen. That that, that is a very distinct uh, viewpoints that you just share with us. So how do Muslims then uh, view the Bible? Well, um, they do accept certain portions of the Bible, they say, the, um, from the Old Testament, the, the Torah of Moses, which they call the Torah, the Psalms of David, which they call the Zabur, and what they call the Injil, the Gospels, though the Gospels can sometimes be um, expanded to uh, represent the whole of the New Testament. But they also believe that the Bible contradicts the Quran because there are so many differences. So it's more convenient for them to say, well, we accept the Bible because that's earlier revelation from Allah, but because it says some pretty different things about uh, Jesus 
being God and so on, it must be corrupted. And so they believe that the uh, the Bible is pretty much uh, corrupted, and that, of course, is convenient for them to dismiss the important differences between the Bible and the Quran. So when you talk to a Muslim, you really need to be uh, able to defend the historicity of the Bible, uh, the early manuscripts and how they all fit together. And uh, so that's the study area that you need to... Um, to uh, to develop and look into in apologetics so that you can defend the uh, the authenticity of the Bible because that will come up with your Muslim friends. Thank you, and that's absolutely right. I've experienced that myself. Now, my next question is, what is the significance of Muslims praying five times a day? We see that a lot on television or even our coworkers and people that we've uh, come across that are that are Muslim. Uh, there's this need or criteria to pray five times a day. What is that about? Well, first of all, prayer five times a day really solidifies their community because they're called to come together, and, and that's why the mosques are set up. They're prayer areas. And really, when you think of it, this is a great tactic to keep the community together because if you've got to come in and, and say hello to each other and, and recite these core beliefs, that there's one God, Muhammad is the uh, prophet, the uh, the last of the prophets, and you um, keep on talking about the supremacy of Islam all over all these other religions, then it is something that reinforces the religion. And to do that five times a day is absolutely brilliant. So for, um, for whoever came up with that, uh, that idea, it's a great way to, uh, to bring cohesion to the to the uh, to the ummah to the to the fellowship to the uh, to the followers of Islam, it provides an action to follow. And if you have actions for believers, something for them to do, they feel like they are participating. And this is a participant religion. It's brilliant, really. But the prayers are very repetitive, and the par- partic- par- practitioners of those prayers often say that they go through the ritual. And that's basically what it is, because it's over and over and over again the same thing, and there are very few personal prayers or very little of a sense of participating in worship, true worship. You're just going through the motions because it is expected of you. And if you don't pray, and if you're not there for prayers, you're looked down upon as a lesser follower of Islam. So to follow up on that uh, response... Would you say then the five times a day prayer, is that uh, mandated through doctrine uh, from the Quran, or is it more cultural? Uh, it is not in the Quran. Uh, it uh, is more cultural. In fact, um, in the Hadith that uh, talks about Muhammad uh, going up and, you know, going up to the, the, the seventh heaven when he was uh, swept away to, to Jerusalem for the, the other mosque doesn't mention Jerusalem, and he thought, well, they'd pray 100 times, 50 times. No, well, he wouldn't live down to five. That's a story that came many, many years after, so it is not a Quranic injunction. It is more of uh, something that became standardized uh, early on, and it was just considered to be part of being a Muslim. Thank you. My next question, then, is uh, going back to the Bible, the Word of God, 
why are there similarities in turn of some of the narratives that's found in the Quran? Uh, it's very similar to um, the narratives in the Bible in terms of, let's say, uh, key, key people, historical people that we see in the Bible. You'll find their names in the Quran. So why are there these similarities? Well, that's a great question. Essentially, and this is something that is coming out more and more, essentially the Quran plagiarized the Bible, or at least it Arabized a lot of the biblical stories, because you find the stories about Moses and Joshua and, and, and you know Jesus, uh, but they're different. They've been changed. Um, there are a number of additions to the former biblical stories that really demonstrate the plagiarized source. And there are a lot of these, but for example, in the story of Cain and Abel, you have um, uh, the action where after Cain has um, killed Abel and he buries him, uh, Adam is looking for for uh, Abel. And there's a crow, a bird, a crow, scratching on the ground, the soil, and there's blood there that uh, is seen, and that uh, alerts Adam to where Abel is buried. Well, that crow is not in the biblical story at all. Right. But it is represented in a 3rd century A.D. Um, Jewish addition to the biblical source. It's made up. Mm. And there it is, contained in the Quran as something that is considered uh, worth malah. No, we know when it, when it came about, where it came from. It is not a biblical um part of the story. And there are many of those things in the Quran. It shows that the Quran was plagiarized by, uh, pulled, uh, it was a document that pulled together a lot of religious documents, a lot of religious stories, because the early um, Arabs, as they were putting together their religion, which became known as Islam, had to have a holy book. So this means that a lot of it probably did not come from Muhammad. It probably came much later than Muhammad and was used as a way to uh, define the religion at a later time. And that is absolutely um, heretical, of course, to the Muslims, but this information is coming out more and more through uh, historians and archaeologists and others. Fascinating story. It is. Fascinating research. It is. So you mentioned uh, the Hadith. Can you tell us what the Hadith is and why it is different from the Quran? Sure. The Quran is considered the revelation of Muhammad to the angel Gabriel, but we're finding that that's very much a different case as we are discovering more and more. The Hadith, though, are stories of the so-called sayings of Muhammad that came through oral tradition, and then they were written down about 150, 200 years afterwards. Yet we cannot trace these back because they were not written down. So most of them are probably just fabrications so that uh, the different uh, groups would have uh, Muhammad speaking for them according to the laws that they were putting into effect. So one group would say, well, this is what we want done. Well, Muhammad said this in support of what we are saying. And so they would create a hadith, a story, a saying of Muhammad, and then these were collected um, 200 years uh, after, in the 9th century, you have the Hadith collections made. Mm. So they were not there at the original. There is no way to know that these were actual sayings of Muhammad. And they're very contradictory. I mean, you can always find 
contradictions between one uh, one hadith and another. Uh, so it, it's very problematic. But the Muslims again believe that these are sacred, and and, and uh, Sharia law is pretty much based on these so-called sayings of Muhammad, mm. and um, so they follow them very rigorously. My next question. Uh, thank you, uh, Professor. Uh, my next question deals with the Hajj. What is the Hajj? Well, the Hajj is coming up. Uh, it's a once-a-year uh, pilgrimage to uh, Mecca, which they believe was the uh, city where Muhammad was born and uh, the religion started. It's the fifth pillar of Islam, you know, the five things that all Muslims should do. Though this one is optional if you have the money, because it can be expensive. And it will be limited, because you can only get so many people in Mecca during this time. It's uh, during the month, the last month of the Muslim calendar, which is uh, called Dhul Hijjah. And this year, the Hajj uh, takes place between September 21st to 26th. Millions of Muslims will converge on Mecca. They will have a, a spiritual experience. But it's based on pagan traditions. Uh, they will circle around the, the black box, the Kaaba, which supposedly once housed 360 gods that Muhammad came and destroyed. But they still do that, and they try to kiss the black meteorite, which is positioned in the side of the Kaaba. It, it, it's based on a pagan tradition. And they'll do other things. They'll throw stones at this, stat, this rock formation that they call Satan. They'll go back and forth between uh, mountains to represent what Muhammad did in finding a well. So it's, it's a, a, a spiritual um, experience that they have, but it's based upon pagan um, traditions, which is very interesting. But that's coming up. It's a, just a pilgrimage and a special time for Muslims to, uh, to show their devotion to, uh, to Allah. Thank you for that clear explanation of it. So from the Hajj to the Jihad, J-I-J-I-J-I-H-A-D, Jihad, what is the Jihad? Okay. Um, jihad is often considered the sixth pillar. It's not one of the original five, but it is, uh, has been very important all the way through. We, we need to understand that there are really two forms of Jihad. The, the lesser jihad and the greater jihad. They call the lesser jihad um, the one that is the uh, internal struggle. Jihad basically means struggle. And the, the, the greater jihad would be the internal struggle where a person tries to struggle with their own sin and their own uh, nature against Allah. Okay, that's, we can understand that. And then they call the lesser jihad one where force is advocated to overcome the infidels and spread Islam, because the Quran is very clear that the objection for Muslims is to dominate the world, to control it for Allah, to take uh, captive or to, um, to, to be over all governments, all people, um, for Allah. And that's the lesser jihad, but it is the one that uses force. Now, they will say that it's supposed to be defensive force, but they can always find an excuse to use offensive force um, to, to, uh, to attain their goals. And uh, it's written about a lot. Jihad for the sake of Allah is not some unfortunate deviation from the true faith. It is an integral part of the faith. 
this is from the Hadith, one of the many uh, times that it talks about jihad. It says, quote, Our prophet, the messenger of our Lord, has ordered us to fight you, infidels, till you worship Allah alone or give jizya, which is the tribute, the head tax, to keep your head if you are a non-believer. And, uh, and our prophet has informed us that our Lord says, Whoever amongst us is killed or martyred shall go to paradise to lead such a luxurious life as he has never seen. That's why these jihadis will go ahead and allow themselves to be killed or commit suicide, because they believe that this hadith and others promises them to get into paradise if they die in this jihad, a declared jihad. Mm. Um, and and uh, so that's in Sahih al-Bukhari. That's in one of the, uh, the best recommended collections of the Hadith, Volume 4, Book 53, Number 386. And it's interesting, we talk about Iran, here's uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini, the, the, the founder, he was the first um, Ayatollah, uh, Khomeini is the one now, but this is what Khomeini wrote, um, quote, those who know nothing of Islam pretend that Islam counsels against war, those who say this are witless, Islam says kill all the unbelievers, just as they would kill you all. Does this mean that Muslims should sit back until they are devoured by the unbelievers? Islam says, kill them, put them to the sword, and scatter their armies. Islam says, whatever good there is exists thanks to the sword and in the shadow of the sword. People cannot be made obedient except with the sword. Mm. So he goes on. So he is advocating jihad. Um, and then you have jihad verses. Uh, there are 164 verses in the Quran that refer to this type of struggle, this type of fighting. There are 41 that specifically mention the word jihad in this uh, this way. And here are just a couple of them. Surah 9:5 uh, is a famous sword verse. Quote: Fight and slay the pagans or the infidels or those who associate another with God. That's the greatest sin, shirk. And we Christians do that because we associate Jesus Christ as God. And that's the greatest of sins, according to Islam. So it says, slay the pagans, the, the infidels, wherever you find them, and seize them, beleaguer them, and lie in wait for them in every stratagem of war. And that's exactly what they're doing. Surah 5.33 says this, The only reward of those who make war upon Allah and his messenger and strive after corruption in the land will be that they will be killed or crucified or have their hands and feet on alternate sides cut off or exiled from the land. Hmm. So these things are being done right now with ISIS in uh, Al-Qaeda. They are just carrying out this injunction because this is what they believe. So, Pro- Professor uh, Janowski, I wanted to ask you something. If, um, if what you just cited to us is blatantly in this uh, surahs and uh, maybe in the hadiths, then would you say that ISIS is basically carrying out the, the, their uh, original uh, mandate in, in what they're doing? Because now it seems like uh, America, a Western view of Islam, is trying to soften Islam's image and engaging in some sort of revisionist history. Uh, exactly. ISIS is saying... This is original um, Islam. This is what we should be doing. And uh, when you look at the Quran, when you look at the Hadith, you can't object to that. They are, ISIS is Islamic. 
it's very Islamic, as Graham Wood has said in his very good article in the Atlantic Monthly several months ago. And so they are just um, carrying out what happened in the first century of Islam. It's very similar as you look historically. So what is ISIS? It's the Islamic State of Iraq in Syria. Uh, that's the ISIS. You sometimes get ISIL. I don't like that because that's representing, the, the L represents the Levant. The Levant is the area that also includes Israel. So that's why Barack Obama and others are instructed to use ISIL, because it includes Israel, which means that ISIS will have power over Israel someday. Anyway, uh, so the group came out of uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq. They uh, wanted to bring about a worldwide caliphate, which they have done. And uh, as of June 29, 2014, they proclaimed themselves to be the worldwide caliphate. That means the, the, the rulers, and they named uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi as the caliph, the leader over this uh, caliph, caliphum, uh, which claims religious, political, and military, military authority over all Muslims. Mm. So once the caliphum is set up, the khilafah, then it uh, demands that all Muslims uh, join it, become part of it. And that's why you have the flocking of so many people, so many young uh, Muslims from around the world, because they feel like this is the only way that they will have a, uh, a free ride into paradise. So they're not mm. afraid to die. It is a death cult. It is a call to death. Right. And uh, that is so strange for us in the West. Right. But uh, ISIS is uh, very much... Uh, what you see in the, the Quran, and they, 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 they have this uh, term called abrogation, uh, which means that all the earlier verses that contradict the later verses are null and void. So the peace verses, which uh, say, uh, you know, take um, Christians as your friend, or there's no compulsion in religion, are all nullified by these later verses that I just read to mm. you, the, the sword verses take up your sword, go against the infidel, and so on. And that's exactly what ISIS is doing. Their end goal is apocalyptic. They want to usher in the end times. They want to bring about their future leader called the Mahdi. And with the Mahdi, they believe that uh, the Muslim Jesus, Isa, will come with them. And this Muslim Jesus will return to the earth break the cross, in other words, destroy Christianity, call all Christians to become Muslims, mm. kill the swine, and abolish the jizya, or the, uh, the head tax, which means that the Christians won't have any recourse. They will either have to accept Islam and become a Muslim, or they will die. Professor uh, Janaski... No choice. <laughs> no, no protected status. We they either accept, or they will die. And that's what they are fighting for. Right. That's why they want America to join in, because they believe that uh, they by defeating America, they will bring about a greater um, uh, a greater goal, and that is the apocalyptic end and the uh, the world in dominated by Islam. Thank you so much for those clear and succinct explanation of Islam and how we as Christians can get a better understanding of what's going on, uh, Professor. Thank you again for being uh, our guest on Sound Reasoning. And your responses are very thorough and educational. Uh, have a great day. And thank you all for listening to Sound Reasoning.
Thanks for listening to Sound Reasoning with apologist and minister Perseus Poku from Sound Reasoning Ministries. It's our prayer that today's lesson has equipped you to share and defend your Christian faith with boldness. Sound Reasoning Ministries offers training in apologetics, biblical studies, and systematic theology. Join in on discussions on Facebook at Sound Reasoning Ministries. For more information about the ministry, to send an email, ask a question, or support the ministry, visit online at srministries.org. That's srministries.org. Listen again next week at this same time. And remember, Titus 1.9 says, Hold firm to the trustworthy message as has been taught so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Sound Reasoning Ministries, srministries.org. I found myself on a ledge three stories high at some condominiums, contemplating my life and struggling to understand my purpose. Have you ever found yourself on the ledge? My name is Billy Yates. I'm a caring father, mentor, and friend. In my new podcast, Billy and the Goat, I share the life-changing events that shaped who I am today to remind you that no matter how far you've fallen, God can help you get up and thrive. Listen now at lifeaudio.com.